All right, we are back. And you know, one thing we always enjoy doing on this program is the good, the bad, and the ugly. So why don't we start out this segment with some selections from that. We are relying, as we generally do, not always, but generally do, in this case, uh, on on the Good Week 4, Bad Week 4 section of The Week magazine. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for wannabes with the revelation that a lot of people are very suspicious that the so-called zebra in a zoo in Cairo is, in fact, a donkey crudely painted with wobbly stripes that become blurry in the heat. Zoo official Mohammed Sultan has insisted the zebra is real and not painted. But, dear friends, if you go take a look at the pictures on the Internet, I think you, too, will have your doubts. We do have to admire Mr. Mohammed Sultan sticking by his guns. Who does he remind you of? Any people in positions of high power, perhaps? It was, on the other hand, a bad week for what the magazine described as radical thrift or perhaps radical shift with the news that a Canadian man got a doctor's note legally changing his gender to female solely to lower his car insurance bill by $846 a month. Explained the man, I didn't feel like getting screwed over anymore. He still, it should be noted, identifies as a male. File that one under the nice try department. It was, on the other hand, an ugly week for American education with the news that parents anxious about their children's social standing are now hiring tutors to improve their video game skills. Most tutors apparently focus on Fortnite, the online shoot-em-up with 125 million global users, and charge up to $20 for a half-hour lesson. Tutor Logan Werner, age 18, was described as saying, It's really surreal to me. My dad would never have paid for me to take video game lessons. It's nice to know that parents in America really, truly have their priorities straight. And you know, that was so fun. Let's do it again. Again, according to the week, it was a good week, a week or so ago, I guess, for charity. With the news that Ruth Reed of New Jersey gave money to a long-haired man who was in her local convenience store and found himself a few dollars short. Miss Reed told him that he looked like country superstar Keith Urban. It was at that point that Keith Urban responded, I am Keith Urban. was, we should note, a bad week for our authenticity last week after the makers of Almond Breeze had to recall 150,000 half-gallon cartons of almond milk from 28 states because some were contaminated with actual milk, as in milk from a cow, not a tree. And finally, it has to be an ugly week for the makers of things like almond milk and coconut milk because of the ruling by the FDA, which noted that milk must be produced by a lactating animal, to which they added, an almond doesn't lactate. 
Yes, no word on whether they'll have to change the name on Milk of Magnesia. We'll just have to see where that goes. Well, we talked about science in the first segment today, something we always like to do. I think we should do a little digression in this segment into politics, something we also like to do, but unlike science topics, so often leave us feeling unhappy and dissatisfied. All right, remember how back in the late 70s, the Sandinistas uh, attempted to topple the dictatorship of Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua, which, which they, I guess you'd say, succeeded at. The Sandinista revolution did send Somoza packing. But many years later, we have to note with sadness that many of those opponents from those days are now Ortega's comrades. And Mr. Ortega himself is now aping the repression of the Somoza regime. Mr. Ortega and his wife, Rosario Murillo, who rule as a couple, seem to have hit on a successful formula for staying in power. They allied with the private sector and the Catholic Church and avoided fights with the U.S. while using Venezuelan aid for social project, at least, at least when the money was flowing out of Venezuela. Since last April, almost 400 people have been killed, mostly by paramilitaries and police loyal to Daniel Ortega. Very sad. We hope that poor country can find some relief in the not-too-distant future. We hope the same for the long-suffering people of Zimbabwe, where, despite the eviction from power of Robert Mugabe, the 94-year-old dictator who was kicked out last November, well, I guess that's the good news for Zimbabweans. The bad news is he was replaced by his hatchet man, Emerson Mangagwa, who has now claimed victory in what's probably a bogus election, to retain power more or less in the hands of the same ruling clique that's been in charge of the country under Mugabe. Very sad. And you know, we scarcely mentioned this little episode that happened in the UN about the breastfeeding resolution introduced last month. We should perhaps say a little more about it. Evidently, Ecuador (laughs) put a rather benign resolution forward about breastfeeding at the World Health Organization's World Health Assembly. The New York Times reported that uh, after citing decades of research, the resolution said that countries should try to limit the inaccurate or misleading marketing of baby formula. But in an attempt to aid the $70 billion infant formula industry, a U.S. delegation told the Ecuadorians to drop the resolution or face punishing trade measures and also to withdraw military aid. Ecuador folded. Of course, oddly enough, Russia then took it upon itself to put another uh, resolution forward that was almost identical, and uh, curiously enough, in this case, there was no U.S. opposition. And as this story about Russian involvement in the 2017 election, Russian involvement as probable financial backers of our president and those many people around him continues to evolve, we like the rest of you, continue to watch amazed. And we probably should mouth off about it a bit, but uh, I think today's not the day. We'll just continue to see what happens with Paul Manafort, etc., etc. What do you do when your president is a buffoon? What do you do when your president is a pathological liar? What do you do when your president behaves like a child? Well, if you're like most of us, I guess you just watch in amazement and hope that somewhere along the way, the adults are going to take charge again. Now, I admit, in this case, the adults may be what has been referred to as the deep state. 
which we at Radio Parallax find to be a valid and legitimate and useful concept. Although at present, everyone seems to be wanting to muddy the waters about what that term describes and what it all means. Trump certainly appears to be at odds with the powers that be, i.e. what you might describe as the deep state. And yet sometimes I think that uh, these powers that be are quite happy with the things they're able to accomplish using him as a tool or his administration as a tool. The Paul Manafort trial is somewhat peripherally related to this issue of Russian involvement, but, but it is tied into all of this. Manafort worked for Ukrainian, the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, who was decidedly the pro-Russian candidate for office in Ukraine. You may remember this great fiasco back in 2004 when certain elements decided to poison his political rival with dioxin, giving him a a, a dose that should have killed a horse. He did survive. And no, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to decipher uh, what what has happened in Ukrainian politics since then. Except to note that there are Ukrainian nationalist factions and there are pro-Russian factions. And yes, Russia did annex a little bit of the countryside that they always considered part of Russia. And no, we don't think that their claims on that property are as far-fetched as some have alleged. But when you do grab the territory that has been described as belonging to a different nation, well, it's, it's kind of a big deal. And more interestingly, the fact that the United States, uh, though it has slapped sanctions on Russia, hasn't had too much bad to say about what's taking place over there. When it's all said and done, we think you're going to find out that there has in fact been a very close affiliation between Russian oligarchs, Russian, the Russian power structure of Vladimir Putin, etc., 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 and Mr. Donald Trump. We would note that Mr. Trump said a couple of weeks ago, it didn't attract a whole lot of attention here in the U.S., but it certainly did over in the former Yugoslavia, when he said that the people of Montenegro were kind of violent and were not worth going to bat for. So he didn't see offering a lot of U.S. support if, if they got in trouble, even though they are, in fact, a NATO ally. And supposedly, when one member of NATO is attacked, everybody's supposed to rally against the attacker. The attacker in this case would possibly be Russia, which has always had its eye on Montenegro. My understanding is that in the wake of World War II, the Russians were very happy to have pushed into Eastern Europe as far as the Adriatic and were hoping to use the large natural seaport of Kotor for the Russian Navy. According to my source in Croatia, and I believe he's correct about this, when Marshal Tito thumbed his nose at Stalin and told the Russians to pull their ships out. They were pretty unhappy about it. But Tito was being goaded by our own Central Intelligence Agency in its effort to push back against the Iron Curtain. These many years later, Russians have retained a great love of Montenegro and reportedly have bought up much of the real estate in the country. So we might speculate as to whether there's a connection between the Russian love of Montenegro maybe we might even say the Russian lust for Montenegro, and the fact that our president is specifically citing that as one place we're just not going to do much to, you know, stand up for. And as far as we know, the Russians are not planning to send tanks southeast into Montenegro. 
But that's such a crude way of taking over a place. There's so many more subtle ways one can go about it. And if Donald Trump had no plans to do anything about it, if Russian tanks did come across the border, he's certainly not going to do much about it if uh, those other means are employed. This is just our opinion, an opinion which we would note is representative of nobody but ourselves. There is something absolutely astounding that's taken place in the last few years in the United States of America as regards political discourse. The kind of trash talk the so-called leader of the free world serves up in Twitter is nothing short of remarkable, particularly when he continues to make statements that are provably, demonstrably false. We can't let it go unmentioned upon that after describing how he had nothing to do with this meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort and some Russians that claim to have dirt on Hillary Clinton after claiming that that meeting was really about Russian adoptions. At, at some point, he just decides, well, I'm going to give that one up, reverses himself and says, oh, yeah, that was about political information, which I might add is perfectly legitimate. We did like the cartoon from Bennett of the Chattanooga Times Free Press, which summarized this all so well. He's got Donald Trump with about 50 voice bubbles around him that all say no collusion, and then one at the bottom that says, well, collusion's not a crime. The fact that Mr. Trump is trying to scapegoat his lawyer, Michael Cohn, for doing all kinds of illegal things that he knew nothing about when it turns out that, well, evidently Cohn taped Mr. Trump, and we have his voice on tape describing how... uh, They should go about buying the silence of Karen McDougal, a former Playboy model who had the bad taste to have an affair with Mr. Trump starting back in 2006. I have friends on the left, very progressive thinkers, who also subscribe to the view of Trump supporters that this Russiagate stuff is all a bunch of BS. I just don't understand this, since it's been readily admitted by the participants that they were getting together to dig up campaign dirt on Hillary Clinton. How is that not collusion with the Russians in the campaign? I I don't get it. Oh, and it appears, by the way, that here in the 2018 midterm elections, the Russians haven't stopped doing what they do, which is, you know, what all powerful nations do. It's what we do when interfering in the electoral processes of other nations. It's what the Chinese attempt to do in other nations. To cite the briefing section of the week, August 17th issue, titled The Russians Are Coming Again, Magazine notes that the Kremlin is waging a coordinated campaign to influence and disrupt U.S. elections in order to create doubt about their legitimacy and to further divide and weaken this country. Russian hackers have already been detected trying to infiltrate the computer systems of at least three congressional campaigns, including Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri, one of the Senate's most vulnerable Democrats. The Russians also appear to be continuing to run influence and disinformation campaigns on social media using fake online accounts. Facebook revealed last week it has shut down at least 32 fake accounts with at least 300,000 followers. Intelligence officials have warned that the Russian government could also launch cyber attacks on the country's voting systems, which it began probably during its campaign to interfere in the 2016 election. According to Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, these actions are persistent, they are pervasive, and they are meant to undermine America's democracy. Hello. The article also asks, have election systems been made secure? A topic we 
banged about on this program at great length over 10 years ago. And sad to note, it doesn't appear things have gotten better. But the week answered, well, no, they're not more secure. America's outdated election infrastructure offers ample targets for hackers. 21 states use voter registration databases built more than a decade ago, with many vendors no longer tracking vulnerabilities or providing security updates. Hackers could potentially delete or change voter registration records or simply shut down some machines in key precincts, which has happened, by the way, creating chaos and doubt about the validity of results. Fully electronic voting machines, where no paper record is generated, are still used in 14 states. When you hack those and change the vote, there's no way to know. It's a perfect crime. In April, J. Alex Halderman, professor of computer science at the University of Michigan, demonstrated to the New York Times how to hack an AccuVote TSX paperless voting machine used in 10 states, we would note, to change the votes recorded on it. Harriman said, if we were criminals and weren't worried about going to jail, I think my undergraduate computer security class could have changed the 2016 result in Michigan. It should be reiterated that the election of Donald Trump to the presidency came down to 70,000 votes in three states. So far, no one has come forward with compelling proof that there was skullduggery by the Russians, or as Greg Pallas might note, why look at the Russians? Why not look at the, other, at the Republican Party? At any rate, did somebody hack into these three states and change the votes? Based on the polling data and the exit polling data, we expressed suspicions about this after the 2016 election, but sadly, there doesn't appear to be any smoking gun that's arisen yet nor any really compelling evidence that such was the case. All we have to go on are just funny-looking numbers. But, you know, funny-looking numbers tell a tale, or can tell a tale. We shall await the final outcome of what that tale might be. And by the way, the high-tech world we live in makes all of this stuff so much easier. I mean, the art of gerrymandering is down to, uh, you know... A very, very exact science, thanks to computer data and the ability of computers to draw lines. So let's bag on the tech industry a little bit, shall we? Because they so richly deserve it. Article by Lindsay Tanner and Matt O'Brien, reported in the East Bay Times last week, notes that out in Chicago, children's advocates want the American Psychological Association to condemn the tech industry's practice of using persuasive psychological techniques to keep kids glued to their screens. The advocates, citing research that links excessive use of social media and video games with depression and academic troubles, say it's unethical for psychologists to be involved in tactics that risk harming kids' well-being. Skeptics say the research is inconclusive, and they note that psychologists have been involved in other industries' marketing and advertising for decades, which is true. The group seeking intervention includes 60 U.S. psychologists, researchers, children's advocates, and the Children's Screen Time Action Network, a project of the Boston-based Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood. The network was publishing a letter Wednesday to the American Psychological Association, coinciding with the annual meeting in San Francisco. They noted, quote, there are powerful and psychological principles and technology that are being used against kids in ways that are not in their best interests. The article notes that that technology uses computers to help figure out what motivates people. 
Yeah, when you take those psychological tests, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, data gets uh, spread around. They got psychological profiles on basically everybody in America, if you listen to the sales pitch by Cambridge Analytica. But anyway, the technology uses computers to help figure out what motivates people and influence their online behavior. It's built on age-old tenets of behavioral psychology that marketers and advertisers have long used to get people to buy their products. The difference is smartphones are ubiquitous, and unlike human marketers, they don't get tired, said B.J. Fogg, behavioral scientist at Stanford, who has been called the technology's pioneer. Fogg said... He has aimed to use persuasive tech to enhance people's lives. Sure, it's making our lives so much better to be manipulated into crap we don't need. But I digress. But he has also said he has long warned that it has a dark side, including a potential loss of privacy, hello, and the potential for encouraging behavior that isn't in users' best interests. Article quotes Richard Freed, a Walnut Creek, California psychologist who signed the letter, is saying families don't understand why their kids are so strongly attracted and pulled to these devices. BuzzFeed reported last week, based on a confidential company memo that founders of a startup recently acquired by Facebook boasted of using a psychological trick described as custom social media profiles and mysterious calls to action to get high schoolers to download a polling app. Facebook later shut down the app. The article notes that Facebook and Google didn't return requests for a comment on whether they use psychological persuasion techniques to build digital products for children. Apple said Wednesday that it doesn't. Microsoft and Amazon also declined to comment. And, you know, although we read this little piece on the show last month, I think I'm going to read it again It's in its almost entirety here. The item was that the inventor of the World Wide Web is horrified by what has become of his creation. This comes from an article in Vanity Fair by Katrina Brooker. Computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee came up with the idea for the web in 1989 while working at the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN. His greatest innovation was to give away the source code for free, letting anyone build their own applications using the technology. Berners-Lee says the spirit was very decentralized. The individual was incredibly empowered. It was all based on there being no central authority that you had to go to to ask permission. These days he shakes his head. That feeling of individual control, that empowerment is something we've lost. He says he's disturbed by the way Silicon Valley companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon have monopolized whole categories of online activity and is aghast at the rampant spying by government agencies. Berners-Lee says the web has failed. Instead of serving humanity, it has become anti-human. He believes that everyone should demand better. Well, by God, we're here demanding better on Radio Parallax. And uh, frankly are a little astonished at this quote from Albert Einstein that we stumbled upon, which was, according to Albert, quote, technological progress is like an axe in the hands of a pathological criminal, unquote. Yow! In fact, let's, let's run through that one again, shall we? According to Albert Einstein, reputed to be one of the most brilliant human beings who ever existed, technological progress is like an axe in the hands of a pathological criminal.
All right, in the final minute and a half or so that we have left, we want to note uh, an obituary, the passing of Adrian Cronauer. Mr. Cronauer was a radio broadcaster and an advocate for military veterans. He died last month at the age of 79. He is undoubtedly best known to you because of the movie Good Morning Vietnam starring Robin Williams. This correspondent is not a Robin Williams fan to say the least, but I have to say he did a pretty good job in that one. Unfortunately, the portrayal by Mr. Williams of the character on the big screen was not that dead-on of the real-life Adrian Cronauer. Said against the movie, the changes the real Cronauer made to Army broadcasting were small. The wild greeting by which he began his broadcast, which, which apparently Robin Williams never got quite right in the movie, was started on a, uh, an Air Force base in Crete. He rode the crest of musical ferment of the time in the 60s. Out went Perry Como and Montovani. And in came the Supremes, the Righteous Brothers, the Beatles, Rock, Motown, and Top 40, which reached troops on the battlefield. He apparently did boldly invent characters and make fun of the drabbest army announcements. But, perhaps sadly, he never once questioned the morality of the Vietnam War. As a firm Republican, Cronauer was hardly anti-military. When he saw Good Morning Vietnam, he felt uneasy at first, and then he settled down and enjoyed it. They'd used almost nothing of the script that he wrote except the title. They'd not talked to him about it, but at least he thought the film showed the story of Vietnam and the soldiers he knew there, not the psychotics of Platoon or Apocalypse Now. He laughed as loudly as anyone else at Williams's crazy shtick. At the premiere of the movie, Cronauer shook hands with Robin Williams, Williams said he was glad to finally meet him. Mr. Cronauer said he was finally glad to meet himself, too. Cronauer said that Robin Williams was the disc jockey he would have liked to have been, the ideal self, perhaps, of his wildest dreams. He also reportedly was glad that, after what he described as the shabby treatment of the troops, that something heartening had come out of Vietnam and that it was linked to him. And I think that's where we'll end it today. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to... Radio Parallax, we look forward to talking to you again next week. I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett. And if your choice comes down to time or money, think about how much more valuable time is. I think we need some suitable outro music, Mr. McMillan.